section twenty six of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty two troubles in the east part one the queen's speech at the opening of parliament on january twenty fourth eighteen sixty mentioned among other things the renewal of disturbances in china the english and french plenipotentiaries it stated had proceeded to the mouth of the peiho river in order to repair to peking and exchange in that city the ratifications of the treaty of tientsin they found their further progress opposed and a conflict took place between the chinese forts at the mouth of the river and the naval force by which the plenipotentiaries were escorted the allied forces were compelled to retire and the royal speech mentioned that an expedition had been dispatched to obtain redress the treaty of tientsin was that which as was told in a former chapter had been arranged by lord elgin and baron gros the treaty contained a clause providing for the exchange of the ratifications at peking within a year from the date of the signature which took place in june eighteen fifty eight lord elgin returned to england and his brother mr frederick bruce was appointed in march eighteen fifty nine envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to china mr bruce was directed to proceed by way of the peiho to tientsin and thence to peking to exchange the ratifications of the treaty in the instructions furnished to him lord malmesbury who was then foreign secretary earnestly pressed upon the envoy the necessity of insisting on having the ratifications exchanged at peking lord malmesbury pointed out that the chinese authorities having the strongest objection to the presence of an envoy in peking would probably try to interpose all manner of delays and difficulties and impressed upon mr bruce that he was not to be put off from going to the capital mr bruce was distinctly directed to go to the mouth of the peiho with a sufficient naval force and was told that unless some unforeseen circumstances should interpose to make another arrangement necessary it would be desirable that he should go to tientsin in a british man-of-war instructions were sent out from england at the same time to admiral hope the naval commander-in-chief in china to provide a sufficient force to accompany mr bruce to the mouth of the peiho the peiho river flows from the highlands on the west into the gulf of petchelee at the northeast corner of the chinese dominions the capital of the empire is about one hundred miles inland from the mouth of the peiho it does not stand on the river which flows past it at some distance westward but it is connected with the river by means of a canal the town of tientsin stands on the peiho near its junction with one of the many rivers that flow into it and about forty miles from the mouth the entrance to the peiho was defended by the taku forts on june twentieth eighteen fifty nine mr bruce and the french envoy reached the mouth of the peiho with admiral hope's fleet some nineteen vessels in all to escort them admiral hope had sent a message two or three days before to taku to announce 
that the English and French envoys were coming, and his boat had found the forts defended and the river staked by an armed crowd, who stated that they were militiamen, and said that they had no instructions as regarded the passage of the envoys, but offered to send any message to Tientsin, and to bring back any answer which the authorities there might think fit to send. Admiral Hope again sent to them, and requested them to remove the obstructions in the river and clear a passage for the envoys. They did not appear to have actually refused the request, but they said that they had sent a messenger to Tientsin to announce the approach of the fleet. When, however, the envoys reached the mouth of the river, they found the defences further increased. Some negotiations and intercommunications took place, and a Chinese official from Tientsin came to Mr. Bruce and endeavoured to obtain some delay or compromise. Mr. Bruce became convinced that the condition of things predicted by Lord Malmesbury was coming about, and that the Chinese authorities were only trying to defeat his purpose. He also imagined or discovered that there was a want of proper respect for an English envoy shown in the terms of the letter and the rank of the official by whom it was conveyed. After consultation with the French envoy, Mr. Bruce called on Admiral Hope to clear a passage for the vessels. On June 25th, the Admiral brought his gunboats close to the barriers and began to attempt their removal. The forts opened fire. The Chinese artillerymen showed unexpected skill and precision. Four of the gunboats were almost immediately disabled. All the attacking vessels got aground. Admiral Hope attempted to storm the forts. The attempt was a complete failure. About 1,000 Englishmen and 100 French went into action, of whom nearly 450 were killed or wounded. Admiral Hope himself was wounded, so was the commander of the French vessel which had contributed a contingent to the storming party. An American naval captain rendered great service to the English and French in their distress. With magnanimous indiscretion, he disregarded the strict principles of international law, declared that blood was thicker than water, and that he could not look on and see Englishmen destroyed by Chinese without trying to lend them a helping hand. The attempt to force a passage of the river was given up, and the mission to Peking was over for the present. It will be easily imagined that the news created a deep sensation in England. It soon became known that although the Chinese government did not exactly accept the responsibility of what had occurred on the Pei Ho, yet they bluntly and rudely refused to make any apology for the attack on our ships or to punish the officials who had ordered it. People in general made up their minds at once that the matter could not be allowed to rest there and that the mission to Peking must be enforced. At the same time, a strong feeling prevailed that the envoy, Mr. Bruce, had been imprudent and precipitate in his conduct. Lord Elgin had himself stated that we could have no right to navigate the Peiho until after the ratification of the treaty, and however discourteous or even double-dealing the conduct of the Chinese authorities might have been, 
it was surely a questionable policy to insist on forcing our way to the capital by one particular route to which for any reason they objected for this however it seems more just to blame lord malmesbury than mr bruce lord malmesbury had of course no idea of what was likely to happen but his instructions to the english envoy read as if they were prepared with a view to that very contingency mr bruce might well have thought that they left him no alternative but to force his way before the whole question came to be discussed in parliament the conservatives had gone out and the liberals had come in lord palmerston's government were only responsible in a technical sort of way for what had happened and to do them justice they only defended the proceeding in a very cold and perfunctory manner but they could hardly condemn their predecessors whose action they had to continue and whose responsibilities they had to assume and there did not seem much use in attacking the conduct of men who were out of office and were no longer amenable to parliamentary censure on the other hand it seems only fair to say that the outcry raised in england about the treacherous conduct of the chinese at the mouth of the peiho was unfounded and even absurd the chinese government showed itself as usual crafty double-dealing and childishly arrogant for a while but the chinese at the peiho cannot be accused of perfidy they had mounted the forts and barricaded the river openly and even ostentatiously the english admiral knew for days and days that the forts were armed and that the passage of the river was obstructed a man who when he sees you approaching his hall door closes and bars it against you and holds a rifle pointed at your head while he parleys with you from an open window may be a very inhospitable and discourteous person but if when you attempt to dash in his door he fires at you with his rifle you can hardly call him treacherous or say that you had no expectation of what was going to happen some of the english officers who were actually engaged in the attempt of admiral hope frankly repudiated the idea of any treachery on the part of the chinese or any surprise on their own side they knew perfectly well they said that the forts were about to resist the attempt to force a way for the envoys up the river the english and french governments determined that the men who had made the treaty of tientsin lord elgin and baron gros should be sent back to insist on its reinforcement sir hope grant was appointed to the military command of our land forces and general cousin de montauban afterwards count palacao commanded the soldiers of france we need not here enter into the military history of the expedition the english and french made short work of the chinese resistance the chinese to do them justice fought very bravely as indeed they seem to have done on all occasions when war was forced on them but of course they had no chance whatever against such forces as those commanded by the english and french generals the allies captured the taku forts occupied tientsin and marched on peking the chinese government endeavoured to negotiate for peace and to interpose any manner of delay diplomatic or otherwise between the allies and their progress to the capital lord elgin consented at last to enter into negotiations at tung chow 
a walled town ten or twelve miles nearer than peking the chinese commissioners were to meet the european plenipotentiaries at tung chow lord elgin's secretaries mr park and mr locke accompanied by some english officers by mr bowlby the correspondent of the times and by some members of the staff of baron gros went to tung chow to make the necessary arrangements for an interview between the envoys and the chinese commissioners on their way back they had to pass through the lines of a large chinese force which had occupied the ground marked out by the commissioners themselves for the use of the european allies some quarrel took place between a french commissariat officer and some tartar soldiers and a sort of general engagement was brought on mr parks and mr locke and several of their companions french and english were seized and dragged off to various prisons despite the fact that they bore a flag of truce and were known to have come for the purpose of arranging a conference requested by the chinese themselves with a view to peace twenty-six british subjects and twelve subjects of france were thus carried off mr parks and mr locke were afterwards released after having been treated with much cruelty and indignity of the twenty-six british subjects thus seized thirteen died of the horrible ill-treatment they received the thirteen who were released all bore more or less evidence physically of the usage which had been inflicted on them lord elgin refused to negotiate until the prisoners had been returned and the allied armies were actually at one of the great gates of peking and had their guns in position to blow the gate in when the chinese acceded to their terms the gate was surrendered the allies entered the city and the english and french flags were hoisted side by side on the walls of peking it was only after entering the city that lord elgin learned of the murder of the captives he then determined to inflict an exemplary and a signal punishment on the chinese authorities the chinese summer palace a building or rather a park and collection of buildings of immense extent had been plundered somewhat efficiently by the french on their march to peking the french commander-in-chief had become possessed of a magnificent diamond necklace which according to popular rumour was afterwards an adornment of the festivities of the imperial tuileries lord elgin now determined that the palace should be burnt down as a means of impressing the mind of the chinese authorities generally with some sense of the danger of treachery and foul play what remains of the palace such was lord elgin's stern notification which appears to be the place at which several of the british captives were subjected to the grossest indignities will be immediately levelled to the ground this condition requires no assent on the part of his highness prince kong the chinese emperor's brother and plenipotentiary because it will be at once carried into effect by the commander-in-chief two days were occupied in the destruction of the palace it covered an area of many miles the palace of hadrian at tivoli might have been hidden in one of its courts gardens temples small lodges pagodas groves grottoes lakes bridges terraces artificial hills diversified the vast space all the artistic treasures all the curiosities archaeological and other that chinese wealth 
and Chinese taste, such as it was, could bring together, had been accumulated in this magnificent plaisance. The surrounding scenery was beautiful. The high mountains of Tartary ramparted one side of the enclosure. It certainly was, says a spectator, one of the most curious and also one of the most beautiful scenes I ever beheld. The buildings were set on fire. The whole place was given over to destruction. A monument was raised with an inscription in Chinese, setting forth that such was the reward of perfidy and cruelty. Very different opinions were held in England as to the destruction of the imperial palace. To many it seemed an act of unintelligible and unpardonable vandalism. Assuredly the responsibility which Lord Elgin assumed was great. It was all the greater because the French plenipotentiary refused to share it. This was not, however, because the French envoy thought it an act of mere vandalism. The French, who had remorselessly looted the palace, who had made it a wreck before Lord Elgin converted its site into a desert, could hardly have offered any becoming protest in the interests of art and of conciliation. The French plenipotentiary was merely of opinion that the destruction of the palace might interfere with the negotiations for peace, which he was naturally anxious to bring to a conclusion. Lord Elgin assumed a heavy responsibility in another way, inasmuch as he did not consider the capture of the Englishmen to have been a deliberate act of treachery on the part of the Chinese authorities. On the whole, he wrote, I come to the conclusion that in the proceedings of the Chinese plenipotentiaries and commander-in-chief in this instance, there was that mixture of stupidity, want of straightforwardness, suspicion, and bluster, which characterizes so generally the conduct of affairs in this country. But I cannot believe that after the experience which Sang Kolin Sin, the Chinese general-in-chief, had already had of our superiority in the field, either he or his civil colleagues could have intended to bring on a conflict in which, as the event has proved, he was sure to be worsted. Still Lord Elgin held that for the ill-treatment and murder of the men, who ought never to have been touched with unfriendly hand, the Chinese authorities must be held responsible, and that even war itself must become ten times more horrible, if it were not one of its essential conditions, that the messengers engaged in the preliminaries of peace are to be held sacred from harm. In this Lord Elgin was undoubtedly right. The only question was as to his justification in adopting what seemed to be so illogical and barbarous a mode of taking vengeance. Would any breach of faith committed by the Grand Duke of Tuscany, when there was such a prince, have justified a foreign conqueror in destroying the Pitti Palace? Would any act of treachery committed by a Spanish sovereign justify the destruction of the Alhambra? To such demands Lord Elgin would have answered that he had no other way of recording in memorable characters his condemnation of the cruelty perpetrated by the Chinese. He explained that if he did not demand the surrender of the actual perpetrators, it was because he knew full well that no difficulty would have been made about giving him a seeming satisfaction. The Chinese government would have handed over to him as many victims as he chose to ask for, or would have executed 
as many as he thought fit to suggest they would have selected for vicarious punishment in all probability a crowd of mean and unfortunate wretches who had no more to do with the murders than lord elgin had himself who perhaps had never heard that such murders were done and who would possibly even go to their death without the slightest notion of the reason why they were chosen out for such a doom that was the chief reason which determined lord elgin we confess it seems to us to have some strength in it most of our actions in the war were unjustifiable this was the one for which perhaps the best case could be made out by a moralist it is somewhat singular that so many persons should have been roused to indignation by the destruction of a building who took with perfect composure the unjust invasion of a country the allied powers now of course had it all their own way a convention was made by which china agreed that representatives of england and france should reside either permanently or occasionally in peking according as the english and french governments might decide and that the port of tientsin should be open to trade and to the residence of foreign subjects china had to pay a war indemnity and a large sum of money as compensation to the families of the murdered prisoners and to those who had suffered injuries and to make an apology for the attack by the garrison of the taku forts thus england established her right to have an envoy in peking whether the chinese liked it or not the practical result was not very great perhaps the most important gain to europe was the knowledge that peking was not by any means so large a city as we had all imagined it to be british geographies have time out of mind taught british children that peking was the largest city in the world now we learned that it was not nearly so large as several other cities and that it was on the whole rather a crumbling and tumble-down sort of place there is some comfort in knowing that so much blood was not spilt wholly in vain. End of section 26